Hello, I'd like to welcome you all to the Def Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Monday, December 3rd, 2012. My name is Bradley Cantor with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I will be moderating today's call. Today, we are honored to have as our guest U United States Air Force Major General Michael A. Kelts, Director for Strategic Planning and Policy, U.S. Pacific Command, who will discuss security, security cooperation initiatives taking place in the region, such as increased opportunities for multilateral country engagements in the areas of humanitarian assistance and maritime security. He also plans to discuss multilateral opportunities with China, as well as opportunities for engagement with Burma. A note to our bloggers on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance, as, in advance of your question. Respect the general's time and keep your questions succinct and to the point. Also, please mute your telephones while you're listening to the program. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to the general. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Really appreciate the, the time to be able to do this. Uh, I try to do this periodically. I've been the director now of strategy and planning for about uh, 16 months here at PACOM, and in that 16-month period, we've seen some pretty interesting changes and also changes and opportunities out here in the Pacific. Uh, first and foremost, uh, probably the big question that we get whenever we go through uh, out the entire region, and I've been to every country of the 36 nations with the exception of Mongolia, Burma, and Laos, uh, and several times to all the other major nations. Um, one of the big questions we get is what exactly is the rebalance, and uh, that's that's probably becoming less and less, and I think people are starting to understand that a little bit better. There was a misperception in the beginning that it was a purely military type of function, uh, that it was a shift or a pivot, uh, which was uh, used in the past when in actuality isn't. What everybody needs to understand that this is a whole-of-government approach, the whole-of-government uh, focus into the Pacific. You've heard the Secretary of State call it uh, the of the Pacific and those types of things. Um, and what it is, is a focus on the whole of government, of which the military portion is a small piece, but it's based upon economic growth and prosperity and regional security. And uh, uh, candidly, when you take a look at the Pacific itself and you look at the, you know, seventh, uh, the three top largest economies in the world, you've got uh, five of our huge treaty allies, only which we only have seven in the entire world, five of them in the Pacific. And how we are taking a look at the Pacific, not just annually, but in a three- to five-year outlook of where we want to be, both from an economic standpoint and a diplomatic standpoint and a military standpoint. And uh, it's been very interesting to see some of uh, um, the questions that come up and how we answer them. It's been very interesting to see how the nations in the Pacific have reacted to both our rebalance and our return. Um, there's a misperception that we're doing this massive buildup in the Pacific when in actuality that's not correct. Um, what we're basically doing is being able to shift the forces that were actually in the Pacific that have been focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, and rightfully so because that was the national imperative for the last 10 years, and now having the ability to uh, bring those forces back to the Pacific and use them in a way that we traditionally have, and in some of the non-traditional aspects. Uh, we mentioned very quickly the the 50-year-old tradition of bilateral relationships with our five treaty allies. That was the main bread and butter, and it was really focused on a, um, a uh, Cold War mentality that had to deal with Russia and China, as we were both uh, very hardcore into the Soviet anti-U.S. mentality, and that has changed, obviously. And uh, we as a military in the Pacific have to change also. And what we're finding is, 
is the multilateral aspect and multilateral, multinational participation of different nations participating in those activities and actions that make more sense to them and that are more applicable. Uh, you're hearing the term non-traditional military problem sets, such as humanitarian affairs, disaster relief, um, counterterrorism, which is a little bit more traditional but more from what we've been seeing lately, uh, peacekeeping operations, those type of things, maritime security, search and rescue, maritime domain awareness, those are the type of things that we're starting to see the region. It resonates very well uh, on a multilateral aspect in which we leverage regional capabilities to solve regional problems. And as that is an overview, what I'd like to do is just keep this short. I'm uh, ready, willing, and able to answer any of your questions, and we'll go from there. Okay, this is Lieutenant Walker. I'm going to take over from here and moderate from here out. What we're going to do is um, go ahead and take a question from the blogger that called in first, and then we'll go on down the line in order of appearance on the call. Uh, General, we have Andrew Lubin up first. Andrew, go ahead with your question. Thank you, General Andrew Lubin, Leatherneck Magazine. Appreciate the time this morning, sir. Thank you. General, uh, the whole nation approach is something that we've been hearing about since Air Force General Robert Holmes was talking about it back in 2006, 2007, 2008 in CENTCOM. But really nothing's ever happened, unfortunately. With what's happening in Washington now, with defense being a question of your for or against it, do you get the funding, do you get the support that you need to do the whole nation, to do the multinational, multilateral approach that, that, that you're hoping to do? That's a, a really complex question, but uh, to be candid... Um, I know Bob Holmes really well. I've known him for 25 years, and he was facing that problem, especially after four and five years uh, after we started in Iraq and Afghanistan. And candidly, after that, you've probably seen some of the most successful whole-of-government approaches to problems uh, than we've ever seen in the history of our nation. Uh, when you start taking a look at the joint interagency task forces that were developed both in Iraq and also in uh, Afghanistan, how hugely they were successful on many different levels, whether or not it was nation building, whether or not it was the provincial recovery teams that you saw in, uh, um, in Afghanistan, whether or not it was working and dealing with provinces within Iraq of not just having a military aspect, but the synergy of having diplomatic, economic, and military capabilities together was phenomenal. Um, we're seeing that out here in the Pacific also. Um, you'll see that both from the perspective of maritime uh, domain awareness and maritime security that we've talked about in the past, but you also see it, very interestingly enough, in the, the violent extremist organizations and the transnational threats in which everybody is recognizing that it is a whole-of-government approach. The other portion that we're starting to see that in is Taiwan, the Philippines, and Indonesia uh, in their exercises for humanitarian affairs, disaster relief, and oh, by the way, Bangladesh is probably leading all those nations in uh, an integrated whole-of-government approach to how do they respond to disasters. And it was very interesting to see in the, uh, the early, the late 2000, I think it was 2007, 2008 time frame when they had the huge mudslides and the rains in Taiwan, how um, they weren't as well prepared and since then have become very well prepared. And you're seeing that the um, typhoon Bofa that's coming up against uh, the Philippines right now, they're already starting to do a whole-of-government aspect and approach to that of how they're going to go ahead and meet the, uh, the typhoon with 130-knot winds um, as it's coming. You're starting to see them already pre-positioned activities and also equipment and personnel and people to be able to handle that. Uh, from your, the second part of your question about the funding portion, 
That is one of the things that is going to be very important because from a soft power perspective, we're not looking at a huge force structure increase or massive increase in spending. The levels that we have right now are what we really need probably in the next three to five years to maintain it from an operational perspective, from O&M money that enables us to go ahead and do the engagements that we're talking about, being able to take a country and say, okay, where do you want to be in the next three to five years and have specific ideas and objectives of where they want to be. And this is a bilateral type of discussion we do with every one of the questions, I mean, with every one of them. The other important part, though, is not just the military, too, because remember, the Secretary of State has a huge um, a bill to pay also when it comes to both nation building and building capacities for military uh, uh, sales or mili- uh, from a DOD perspective, but uh, the FMF funding, IMET funding, that uh, has, a, has a huge state portion in there also. And so from that perspective, it's very important that we maintain those levels of funding. And when you really look at it, they're not that much in the big scheme of things. And when you really take a look at it, it's uh, probably the best bang for the buck is just the operational maintenance uh, budget that we have that enables us to use our forces across the entire Pacific for the multinational, multilateral relations, I mean, the exercises that are out there. Oh, Pete, can I follow up and then I'll skip next time since there's only four of us? Yeah, that's fine, Andrew. Go ahead. You have you have the opportunity to do a follow-up anyways. Go ahead. I appreciate that. We agree with you on all of this. I mean, we've been following uh, soft power and, and, and uh, whole nation approach since we started talking with General Holman back on the show you know, years ago. But it strikes me as the, big emphasis, the biggest problem is maybe service emphasis. Uh, you look at the Pacific with the HADR that, that, that we do. Maybe having more nuclear submarines isn't the best use of funding, but building the Gator Navy is. Because you're putting a couple of small ships in the harbors where people are going ashore working with security forces, it's better than having a nuclear boat, you know, a thousand miles uh, offshore and a thousand foot deep where nobody sees it. Uh, could you clarify what your question actually was? I, I didn't, I didn't catch that. It was kind of garbled. We have a poor connection. Well, I'm agreeing. You know, clearly, you know, the funding is available because this isn't a really big dollars to build smaller ships that are more effective. But perhaps some of the problems might be in some of the service branches. And as an example, you're building another nuclear submarine, you know, perhaps isn't as necessary as rebuilding or increasing the size of the Gator Navy, which is undersized anyway, because having a couple amphibs in, in, in the Burmese harbor is a lot more effective than, than another nuclear boat a thousand miles offshore and a thousand foot deeper. Nobody sees it. Yeah, I, I get that now. And, and candidly, um, it is something that we have really started to work on hard, especially in the last three years. Uh, with the new theater campaign plan that we have that has been actually uh, coordinated both with the services and also with the individual country teams of where we want to go, what we need to do, there are certain aspects that are involved with that, whether or not it's a nuclear-powered submarine going into Subic Bay for a stopover, how do we use that in the entire plan, what we're trying to say within the nations, and that's a very important part, not just the uh, putting in a couple of the URGs out there and taking uh, the MAGTAS and, and, and running them around, but in conjunction with all those operations, activities, and actions, I monitor this, and we assess it all, and the more activities we have throughout the entire theater, we meet those specific objectives and also the, the national objectives that we're given whether or not it's a nuclear submarine with extended deterrence policy that we need to have here in the Pacific to reassure our allies that, yes, we are prepared to go ahead and do that, or whether or not it's a new or frankly, whether or not it's a couple of Air Force civil engineers that we're sending to uh, Burma 
to help out with some of their infrastructure problems or military doctors from all three four services. Uh, so from that perspective, it's a really, when you talk about whole of government, but even just whole of DOD approach, there's certain objectives that I have to meet in the theater that we are trying to do in every various form that we possibly can. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew, for your question and General for your answers. Rita, you're up next. Hello, General. Uh, this is Rita Bolin from Signalscape and Signal Magazine. And my question is, um, you know, relationships and capacity building and interagency have really long been the mission and the, the operations of PACOM. And so could you tell a little bit, you know, now with, with this new strategy to focus on the Pacific, what is different or, or what has changed? Okay, and that's a darn good question. And what has changed is that we used to have this program, the Theater Cooperation Plan, uh, was basically a one-year plan that said, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this in 2013. And then we told you know, Army Pacific, Air Forces Pacific, Marine uh, Corps Pacific, you guys go ahead and do stuff and uh, tell us how well you did at the end of the year. And what we've done is fundamentally changed the entire program. And as I mentioned, we've, we've given it a three- to five-year outlook, the theater strategy and the theater campaign plan. We have pulled the service components and the services into that planning in addition, we have also pulled into the country teams for each one of the nations that are out there, and we've prioritized what we do with whom. We have deconflicted services being able to do certain activities in certain countries, case in point, uh, Philippines. We had six different explosive ordnance development teams from all the services going down to the Philippines, and it wasn't tied to any single objective. And as we found out that the Filipinos thought that's the only way the Americans wanted to do it, even though they would have sent, let's say, sailors to an Army EOD team. Uh, traditionally, it was always by service. So what we're trying to do is both synergize the effectiveness of the training, but at the same time decrease some of the uh, overlapping that we've been seeing in the past. And now we've also, what has been significantly different in the, what we're doing in the next three to five years, We've also built in the assessment language within the theater cooperation plan from the get-go. And from that assessment, we're determining about where do we need to adjust, where do we need to increase or decrease. The other part of the uh, deconfliction process is we're being able to even it out throughout the countries, you know, so we don't have five or six different activities, major activities in country X, and then we don't show up for three to four years. It's a very deliberate, laid-out process. It is one that we continuously review once every three months uh, within our, uh, the steering boards that we have to review our progress. And it's really a fundamentally different way of doing things, and it's really paid dividends, both not just for the services to be able to sit there and look out, okay, PACOM needs to do X. So the Air Force knows that PACOM needs to do something five years from now. That helps them with their palming process and the PBS process. But more importantly, the really important part is it's the country. So if I'm dealing with Indonesia and they know they want to go ahead and really start to come back onto the world scene after their human rights debacle from 10 years ago, and they want to show the world that they have really made progress, in three to five years they probably want to get rid of those shackles. And so we've actually built that into the campaign plan with the, with the Indonesians of where we want to be in three to five years, in their army, their navy, their air force, and also, by the way, Human rights. It's kind of interesting if you take a look at the, the unit that was the most um, egregiously um, uh, indicted, the Capasos, their special operations forces, they have turned around so significantly that they are a model 
for human rights without within the entire Southeast Asian region. As a matter of fact, the Indonesians are helping some of the other other countries with Kapasos to say these are the lessons that we've learned, these are the things that we need to do, these are some of the things that are applicable right now. And you can see that both in Papua New Guinea, you can see that in several other different areas, you can see that in Timor-Leste. From that perspective, I hope that answers the question. All right. Thank you, sir. We're going to head on to uh, John McCandless. John, you're next. Uh, thank you, uh, and thank you, General, for taking the time today. I, I am based in Detroit. I'm retired uh, Navy Reserve Captain, uh, public affairs type. And uh, a couple things. Uh, four deployed forces. The uh, new USS Freedom will be headed out to Singapore. And uh, the Fort Worth that just got commissioned, the USS Detroit, is being built and will be commissioned in 2015. What role do you see for those forward deployed forces? Will they always be in Singapore? Or will they be in uh, uh, perhaps other countries? And also along the same lines with the USS Michigan being an SSG now or in forward deployed to, uh, to Guam, uh, I'd like your perspective on the military aspects of, of uh, those two types of ships. Oh, they're essential, and this is why. One of the things that we have, as you know, you can sit there and take – 12 of the continental United States and put them into the Pacific AOR, 12. So think about, we call it the tyranny of distance, but when you take a look at it from that perspective, it takes 22 and a half days to steam from San Diego to get into the Southeast Asian region. Uh, that's why we took a look at a couple of these force posture initiatives. Uh, you mentioned the one in Singapore, bringing in the littoral uh, combat ships in there, and you're absolutely right, they will be vital. Uh, rotational presence of the ships. The ships will be forward, will bring crews forward to be able to use them throughout Southeast Asia, because when we start taking the other force posture initiatives, whether or not it's moving the Marines out of Okinawa into Guam, realigning some of those forces, then seeing the 2,500 Marine uh, MAGTAP that we will have in Northern Australia for six months out of the year, we will need lift to rotate them around and to have forward presence. And so the rotational proportion is very, very important. Uh, bringing the SSGN forward to Guam is also very important, especially for uh, the Special Operations Forces. As you know, the SSGN has a fantastic capability to go ahead and move both forces, special ops forces, and also a, a conventional uh, tactical capability forward also. So those are all part of this entire rebalance we're taking a look at that, whether or not you're talking about some of the increased activities we're doing with the Philippines for HADR and Maritime Domain Awareness, the HADR Center that we're uh, working with jointly with Thailand, and then the next HADR Center that we're working with with Bangladesh. Um, what we're going to use is build on those for regional capacity and have regional multilateral exercises. So the LCSs that you're seeing going into Singapore, the SSGN, that's forward, will be essential to the building partnership and partnership capacity in the next coming decade. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Chuck Simmons, you're up next. Thank you for taking our call, General Chuck Simmons with America's North Shore Journal. Um, following up on, on the, the previous question, uh, over the last few years we've talked with uh, the Civic Command uh, spokespeople uh, several times, um, learned about the Marine issue, learned about the Navy uh, uh, deployment. Uh, and we spoke with uh, uh, the Army, who very bluntly said that they have no interest in any sort of 
rotational deployment or uh, forward deployment. Um, where does the rotational deployment technique or forward deployment technique come into play for the Army uh, under Pacific Command? And uh, where does it come into play for the Air Force? You guys are faster getting across the water, but it's still a long way from Hawaii to, um, or from uh, Missouri to uh, the uh, Eastern Pacific. Yeah, that, that, that is a common misperception, and I can tell you right now that is a fundamentally wrong perception. The Army has uh, significant or forward rotational forces because we're finally back here. They want to do something similar with what we've done with the Marine Task Force in northern Australia because they've got the uh, Bradshaw training ranges that are just absolutely huge. Um, the United States Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, General Odinero, has been very forthcoming about orienting towards the Pacific. He has oriented First Corps out of uh, Fort, Wa I mean, uh, Fort Lewis in Washington towards the Pacific. The First Corps commander has been out several times to determine how they're going to be used out here. We're working very closely with the United States Army for forward rotational presence, but also, more importantly, the 36 nations out in the Pacific have been waiting and yearning for a land component, whether or not it's Marine Corps or Army, interaction because they've been really focused on both Iraq and Afghanistan. So from that perspective, the United States Army is coming on hard, it's coming on strong, and it will, its presence will be felt throughout all of Southeast Asia. Now, that especially that we've uh, stopped the rotations in Iraq and we're starting to wind down in, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, the United States Air Force has been continuously rotating throughout the entire Pacific uh, for the last 10 years. We've had these uh, uh, theater cooperation security packages, whether or not they're F-22s flying from the United States out to Guam and also to Kenina. We've had a continuous bomber presence now for over 10 years in Guam with several of the B-52 bombers and also B-2 bombers coming out. And you just saw B-2 bombers flying through Australia and heading up, I mean, to the Southeast Asia and heading over to Diego Garcia. So the Air Force is in full-blown rotational presence. They have been for consistently the last 10 years. Uh, you see the Navy, obviously, is constantly streaming through, and the Marine Corps, as they've been available, have been able to do that. But the, the real change that you're going to see is the United States Army is going to be loud, and it's going to be proud in the Pacific. Okay, thank you, sir. Um, did anybody else join the call? This is Michelle from Military Matters. Uh... Okay, Michelle, if you'd like to go ahead and round it out, and then we'll head back around the horn for any uh, follow-ups that we have. Go ahead, Michelle. Wonderful. General, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about uh, our uh, with Burma right now and whether or not we're going to be able to continue to engage in getting uh, some of the POWs that they've put a lot of the search and rescue in there. You bet. Michelle, that's that, that a great point. And I just talked to the new uh, JPAC commander, Major General Kelly McCaig, um, who happens to be a high school classmate of mine from Hawaii, which is kind of funny. Uh, we're... Uh, Burma has, is a great opportunity for us, and uh, that's one of the first things that we'll probably be doing from a military perspective in addition to military medicine uh, is going into taking a look at some of the recovery of some of our fallen uh, uh, heroes in, in uh, World War, especially World War II and uh, some of the other uh, activities that we've had. And so Kelly's actually working very closely with uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense of uh, DPMO and uh, 
We're working together when we can work that through. The State Department has made significant strides in opening the area. Uh, obviously, Derek Mitchell was just confirmed as the ambassador to Burma, which we have not had in quite a while. Uh, we've also just had a, a, a high-level human rights delegation go to Burma to discuss that, because that is really going to be the underpinning of the continuation of the opening of Burma, is how do they go ahead and address the human rights concerns that they have uh, throughout the country and some of the problems that they've had with the military junta. And you can see how Tencent is just trying to go ahead and bring his country back into the Western limelight, away from some of the human rights abuses that had happened and become more democratized. So from that perspective, we're trying to use all the military capability that we can to start really initially at the low level and to, to help with the human rights issue. You saw that uh, in Indonesia we almost had a decade in which we had no military contact with them. And they, uh, unfortunately it's called the lost generation of military officers that did not have any interaction with the United States, did not have a face-to-face -face, um, relationship with uh, American officers because we really helped out on the human rights side uh, of abuses, and it's it's very powerful when you have a good relationship with a country from a military perspective, especially with the values that the United States comes uh, into the force with, and how they go ahead and set the high bar and those standards. Uh, these nations are ready, willing, and able to want to meet those standards, and also be able to take advantage of the training that the Americans have. And so you'll see some things like JPAC, you'll see things like military medicine, and hopefully we'll start seeing some HADR exercises. Uh, uh, Bangladesh has expressed an interest to do a multilateral HADR exercise with Burma, Bangladesh, and the United States, and possibly India, if they'd like to go ahead and participate. Thailand has offered up both HADR and some military uh, medicine uh, exchanges so that we could start opening the door in Burma, and I think that is a fantastic opportunity for the United States and also for the Southeast Asian region. Yeah, you had mentioned uh, the exercises, and I know early on this year when uh, Cobra Gold, there was quite a, uh, back in February, which had an enormous impact uh, and seemed to be a, a well-represented exercise as it took place. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, Cobra Gold, as you recall, was really a bilateral exercise that has grown into a multilateral regional exercise. Uh, if I recall correctly, the last Cobra Gold had 22 different nations that were either participating or observing. Um, we've also invited the Chinese to participate in it. And so we're opening that up, and uh, from a broader perspective, one of the things that we've recommended to the Secretary of Defense, and he went ahead and, and broached to the, the Chinese in his last visit during June, was opening up as many multilateral events, opportunities for the Chinese to participate, because it's very important in the region, that the region sees the United States and the Chinese partnering together for regional problems to develop regional solutions and to make sure that people understand from the United States perspective, this is not zero-sum game. We do not expect these nations to choose either the United States or China. China brings some things that are great to the region. The United States brings things that are great to the region. And together, that opportunity exists, and we've opened that up in a big way to the Chinese. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. for the defense consultative talks at the three- and four-star level next week uh, discussing this very issue with the Chinese. Yeah, that, that that always seems to be a concern given the the change in in their administration this year. Okay, thanks for your question, Michelle. I'm going to head back around to Andrew. Do you have anything? Yes, I do, General. Uh, part of the president's trip to the Pacific is his very successful uh, 
treaty with the Australians to put a uh, to put American troops on the ground there with a very active Marine contingent. Can you tell us what the Air Force is doing? They've given you an airfield, I believe. Do you have troops on the ground? What's the Air Force's role in this? Uh, before it was the PACOM J-5, it was the Deputy 3-5 down at PACAP, Pacific Air Force's headquarters, and I actually worked this program personally. Um, there's, a, there's a misperception that this is the, uh, just a Marine thing that's going up on Darwin, when in actuality it was all the services that, that we worked at, and the thing that we could do the quickest initially was with the Marines. Um, the Air Force is looking at several different bases to see if we can go ahead and upgun uh, some of the, the capability of the bases to bring in some of the bigger airplanes also to be able to use reconnaissance in there. As you know, the relationship we have with the Australians is absolutely outstanding. Um, they've invited us down, and they also have ranges that we can use that uh, we really don't have with the exception of Alaska uh, in the United States. So from that perspective, being able to have multilateral exercises and also for all services, uh, not just the Marines, but it'd be a, a joint type of thing, both amphibious forces, uh, Army forces, air, ground, and sea forces, um, we have the ability to go ahead and do that, and we're starting to work that now. As a matter of fact, I just came back from Australia. I came back from Darwin uh, and looked at both Tyndall and also Darwin uh, Royal Australian Air Force bases here two weeks ago uh, to at least get the ball rolling. We already do some significant exercises, pitch black from the Air Force perspective with them, and also to, to see what we can do to open up the, uh, the naval presence and also naval capability. As you know, the northern part of Australia has some significant tidal changes that they work uh, that they deal with themselves. So from that perspective, we have some challenges, but we're working all the services for those kind of rotational presence, not just in Australia, but also in the Philippines. Malaysia wants some more. Indonesia wants them also. Singapore, we've already talked about, and Thailand. Great. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Andrew, in general. Um, next, we'll have Rita. Do you have anything? Yes, hi. I was wondering um, how you think that the drawdown of troops in Afghanistan might affect Islamic extremists in your region and what, you know, a whole-of-government perspective can do to help plan for that. Um, and sort of a follow-on, if you think having fewer troops in Afghanistan will make it more likely that extremists will try to target the higher troop numbers in your um, AOR. Well, it's kind of interesting as you take a look at that because you look at the violent extremist organizations that are coming out, and when, it, from a cultural perspective, uh, and then I spent three and a half years in Iraq and Afghanistan before spending the last seven years here in the Pacific. From a cultural perspective, there's a fundamental difference between the South, Central Asian and Middle East Muslim populations and also the South Asian, Southeast Asian Muslim populations. Um, it, and the reason why I say it's a significant difference is because they, they have a disdain towards these extremist type of organizations. And so from a whole-of-government perspective, they've already started and they've learned the lessons that they saw what was happening in Afghanistan, they see, saw what was happening in Iraq, and they've started to, with the information sharing that we've been doing from a counterterrorism perspective, a violent extremist perspective, from a transnational threat perspective. There is a regional resolve to go ahead and stand up to this threat. And so it's been very interesting to see because when you have the world's largest Muslim democracy, i.e. Indonesia, and the second world's largest Muslim democracy, i.e. Bangladesh, very pro-U.S., but also very anti-extremist. Um, they have, they have uh, established a multilateral, regional information sharing capability to go ahead and attack this problem. So from that perspective, there's a fundamental difference, both in the cultural aspect, but also in a realization that this threat is not going to be away. We have to sit there and take 
we have to sit there and be able to take uh, the, uh, the regional problem, because it's not just a challenge to the United States, but it's also a challenge to the region, and how do we work together to go ahead and make that happen? And so I do not foresee um, a major threat to U.S. forces, but the region looks at this as a threat that they want to be prepared for now, and they're starting to take measures and activities to prevent that from happening in the entire region itself. Thank you, sir. Up next, John, do you have anything? Uh, two final questions for uh, General Kelts. Uh, one, you, uh, you indicated you've been 16 months into this assignment. Uh, what was different about uh, this year's annual Chief of Defense Conference? And an easier question, what's your hometown, sir? <laughs> my hometown is actually Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm a Damien boy. I went to Damien High School. My father went to Kaimaki. He watched Pearl Harbor get bombed as he was walking to Sunday school. So, Wow. A little bit more complicated than that because I was born and raised in Berlin, Germany, because the Hawaii boy went to, into the Army, and then he met my mom in Berlin in 1958. So <laughs> that's where I'm from. Thank but, you, sir. Um, the difference for the, the uh, Chief of Defense, first major difference was Australia co-hosted it with us in Sydney, and it was the first time that the Australians had co-hosted it. Um, it was a phenomenal success. Uh, unfortunately, once again, we've invited the Chinese, and they turned it down. And it's, it's, it's a shame because we're giving the Chinese as many opportunities as possible to participate in these incredible venues. And the strength of the Chief of Defense Conference is when you have multiple nations, leaders, get to know each other on a personal level, exchange cell phone numbers. So whenever there's something stupid that happens between their countries, and I'll tell you a really neat story, Thailand and Cambodia on the border, their Chiefs of Defense are friends, and they can call each other, and they can hopefully defuse some of the situations that are out there. The Chinese, on the other hand, they have this tendency to want to stay away from it, and, and it's bad for two reasons. One, they don't participate, so we don't get their point of view. Two, since we don't get their point of view, somebody else gives their point of view for them, and it's, in not, it's not in their best interest to not participate. So we're trying to give them as, as many incentives as possible because you've got we had 28 chiefs of defense from the region there. What a great opportunity for the Chinese to be able to participate and interact. So from that perspective, um, it was very different this year because it was down in Australia, but it was, I would say each one of these has gotten more powerful uh, because this is really the only venue in which these chiefs of defense get together. And some of these guys have been their chiefs of defense for seven, eight years, and they've built some very strong relationships, and it's really reassuring. Thank you, sir. All right, John, I appreciate your participation today. Chuck, you're up next. Um, I just wanted to, to ask about um, Guam, and um, am I wrong to consider Guam perhaps the, the linchpin of, of, of the strategy here, uh, um, an American-owned uh area where we can, without uh, offending anybody, move troops or ships or planes, um, and uh, what what is the, the say, five-year plan or ten-year plan for uh, Guam militarily? That's a darn good question, and, and you see, because people have this tendency to take a look at the traditional manner, which look at... Um, U.S. military presence or U.S. territories for it. And while uh, Guam is an ex exceptionally
traditionally important cog in the entire, you know, gear, so is Hawaii, so is Kadena, so is, you know, South Korea. Um, candidly, uh, as we develop this strategy, as we take a look at the access that is opening up to us, whether or not the Philippines, the Australia, Singapore, Thailand, Bangladesh, or different types of non-traditional problem sets, and also for some more complicated uh, higher-end military activities, um, everything is that perspective. Uh, rotational presence is important. Access to ports, airfields, and training ranges is very important. Um, but specifically for Guam, it's very interesting because the Japanese, as we're doing the rotation out of the realignment out of Okinawa to Guam, they went ahead in the, their $3.1 billion um, uh, offer in which they are paying $3.1 billion, and of which they've already put $834 million into a bank for it, um, is developing training ranges in Tinian, uh, Pagan, and uh, Guam. Uh, put $300 million have been set aside for that for joint air, land, and sea ranges in the mid-Pacific. And a lot of the nations, partner nations in the, in the area, are waiting for that. So in the next five to ten years, you will see uh, a shift of forces out of Japan into Guam as we build up the infrastructure. And we're working very closely with uh, uh, the Chamorro um, local folks and also the uh, environmental in, uh, environmental inspection agencies, uh, trying to get our EASs and also the uh, environmental impact statements done. And as we work that, we're continuing to build up the infrastructure, both from a family perspective, but also from a military training perspective, as we go ahead and do that. So what I see in Guam in the next five to 10 years is not just Guam itself, but also the training ranges will be a very important uh, cog to that. And we're already starting to talk about that from a regional perspective with our regional partners and allies. Okay, thanks, sir. Michelle, do you have anything? Just a real brief one, General. I'd like to know, um, with our affiliation with Taiwan and uh, their affiliation with China as far as the uh, getting in and out of the Taiwan Strait, where do we stand on that from our military presence, uh, our Navy presence today? Uh, our position has not changed in 50, 60 years on that at all. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, Still no headway. Pardon me? Still no headway. Headway on what? Um, I, I didn't understand. For us to, to move it forward anymore, I was hoping that this could be a, a good year that we could, through the conference this year, if anything was possible, that maybe that could start movement towards getting them to open that area up for us, for you. Well, we've been traditionally going through the Taiwan Straits for the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I, I, there's no restriction on that, especially as we do our freedom of navigation uh, through that area. We routinely have ships, U.S. ships, go through the Taiwan Straits. As a matter of fact, we just had one here about three, four weeks ago. Uh, I believe it was uh, uh, two destroyers that went through that area. Uh, and it's important, too, especially as we take a look at that from a PRC perspective. And some of the problems we're having in South China Sea, East China Sea, and also in the Taiwan Straits, with China's excessive territorial and maritime claims. It's unfortunate, especially since they are a signatory to the UN Conventional Law of the Seas. Uh, they've, they've signed by it, but they won't abide by it. They won't abide by the tenants, especially for conflict resolution and also territorial claims, which is ironic considering they always uh, ding the United States for not having ratified the UNCLOS, but yet ironically we abide by every tenant 
Convention on Clause, mm -hmm. and yet they have ratified it and they have become signatories to it, but yet they don't abide by the tenants. So we need to have a regional solution to this. This is not just a bilateral solution to the territorial uh, the problems here. And with Taiwan, that is something that's going to have to be resolved eventually. It's a political problem, and they're working through that. And our main emphasis is, as you've heard for years and years and years, our main emphasis is that it's resolved peacefully. Right. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, we're going to begin wrapping this up. I would like to offer the floor over to you, General Health, if you have any closing statements. Well, uh, not really. I think we've kind of gone through it. I just got like to give the time back and have one final question from a couple of folks there that have may have. Uh, I have a quick one, General. Do you have a prediction for the Army Navy game this weekend? <laughs> Quite frankly, I would rather see Army beat Navy because I'm so torqued at the Zoom bags for losing to both of them. It was absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I'm sorry. I can't hear you. You're breaking up. Um, this is Lieutenant, maybe, maybe Lieutenant Walker. Um, I'm kidding, sir. Um, well, thank you all. We've had some great questions and comments today. As we need to wrap up today's call, I'd like to ask um, any of the bloggers, if you have any other reference materials or um, source materials that you'd like to follow up with, please go ahead and email us, and we'll either shoot them back to the general staff or answer them directly. Um, and thank you, sir, for your time. We certainly uh, certainly appreciate you being on the call today. As a reminder to all, today's program will be available online at dodlive.mil, where you'll be able to access the audio from today's roundtable and more. Again, thank you, Major General Kelps and our blogger participants. This concludes today's event. Please feel free to disconnect at this time. Goodbye.